I've been to each of the Reformation classes, <clears throat> usually at 9 o'clock, uh, once, once I think, or twice at 10.30. And I think we've been blessed with the people that we've had. Uh, they have given to us a sense of the sweep of the Reformation from Luther in the 15 teens all the way till Matthew referenced 1667, so 150 years like that. And when I look on what we do today, what I'm trying to do today, I would like really to, to try to somehow encapsulate the meaning, some of the meaning of everything that we've heard. So what I'd like to do is organize what I say today and maybe next Sunday around some propositions or proposals. I'd like to make four proposals about the past, and then I'd like to make four proposals about the function of doctrine. So let's start with the proposals about the past. The Reformation happened 500 years ago, and we've heard stories about key figures and key events who lived and happened a long time ago. My first proposal is we do not live in the past. We live on the past. And I like to illustrate that idea with a story that's much closer to home. Forty-three years ago, the board of this congregation met, I think it was in late summer or early fall, and they were a disheartened bunch of people. And I, you know, I met with boards, all pastors meet with boards and spend hundreds and hundreds of hours. And you just know that board members walk into a meeting, most of them coming from work, some of them not even getting home to eat before they come. That makes them cranky, but they come anyway. And they, they do their responsibilities remarkably well. And on that night in 1994, they were discouraged and there arose in the meeting from one of the board members a, pray, a motion to disband this church. And it was, it was a shocker. They had been in existence about five years. It had been a grind. The church had met for almost four years at the Friends School, courtesy of Art Hill, who is still in our church today and who was a middle school principal at the time. But you had to set up and take down, set up and take down Sundays and Wednesdays. And, and, it, and things were kind of going sideways and maybe a little backwards in 1994. And on that night, there was no second to the motion. And instead, there was a conversation among the board we should pray for a month. When we come back next month, we'll take this motion off the table and then decide what to do with it. So they did that. They, I'm sure they talked to each other. They prayed and came back together the next month. And when they took the motion off the table, they, they, they wanted nothing more to do with it. They said, we, we don't have a morale problem in our church, we have a forgiveness problem in our church, and it starts 
with us deacons. And the problem was the lingering hard feelings within this congregation toward members of what was then Emmanuel Baptist Church down on Pennsylvania Avenue and Green Hill Avenue there at the corner. And the board that night said, we've got to reconcile with them if reconciliation is possible. And so they made a motion, a decision, that they would approach the board from Emmanuel and ask if they could meet together. And the answer was yes. And the two boards met. And all of this happened before we ever came to to this church. So everything I know I've learned from conversations with people, mostly here, a few people who were at uh, Emmanuel. And the boards that night, whatever transpired between them, agreed we need to reconcile. But it's not just us boards. The congregations have to reconcile. That's where the anger and the harsh language is. So we have to have a meeting of the two congregations at Emmanuel, which was the only place big enough to handle everybody. And on the night that Howard Gerlock, the chairman of the search committee, pastoral search committee for this church, visited Carol and me in Manlius, New York, outside Syracuse. He said, tonight we need to be praying for the two congregations. They're meeting tonight, and they're seeing if they can reconcile. And the word that came back to me from that meeting was that people stood up and they bared their souls. And they said, you know, I have been angry at you for five years for what you did to our church. And I have had, I have had thoughts about you I regret. And I've said things about you that I regret. And I need you to forgive me. And that whole evening, apparently, was that kind of very blunt exchange. And at the end of the evening, there was, in some way that I've never been able to reconstruct, a meeting of minds between not only the two boards, but between the two congregations, that they would now be at peace. That's our past. If that meeting in 1994 of the board had not happened. What did I say? 94, 74. I'm sorry. It was 43 years. <laughs> Thank you. 74. If that had not happened, we would not be here. We live on that meeting. I mean, we exist because of that meeting and its consequences. And that past of our church is inspiring, it's educational. I've been able to share it with other pastors who've lived through a church split and they have found hope that maybe something would be possible for their churches as well. We don't live in the past, but I'll tell you, we live on the past. We all do. And I'll tell you where that truth comes home in ways that are very hard to Remember, when you have somebody you love who suffers memory loss, all of a sudden you realize we only have access to the past with our memory. And when somebody can't remember, 
sometimes can't remember their own child or their own spouse, you realize that not only have, have they lost contact with people they love, they've lost themselves. And my, my point in making that is communities, whether it's political or business or churches, can suffer memory loss in that we lose contact with the forces that have shaped who we are today. And part of the rationale for doing these nine weeks on the Reformation has been to put us back in touch with a period of time that was extremely distressing, extremely fruitful. And we exist today because of what happened 500 years ago in Germany and Switzerland and France and England and Scotland and ultimately in New England, and that's the rest of the story. So we live on the past. It feeds us. And if some of what you heard was new in these last eight weeks, it's like pushing back the darkness and letting a little more light shine from a past that makes us who we are today. That's the first proposal. Does that make sense to you all? Are we, are we tracking? Yes. Yeah? I mean, 1974, but are you still tracking? <laughs> 1974. You're 43 years old. There you go. Happy birthday in advance. Second proposal. The past, our memories of the past, the stories we tell about the past, either convey or cover up the treasures of the past. I share with you a really good memory about Brandywine Valley. But all of us know we all have bad memories. And we tell ourselves stories based on those memories. The stories we tell can convey riches or they can cover the riches of our past individually or as a congregation or as a nation. Let me give you an example. When I, was, when I came of age, John Kennedy was president of the United States. And President Kennedy was, uh, whatever else he was, he was a witty man. And I remember either hearing him tell it or reading about his telling a story of meeting for dinner in the White House with an international group of heads of state. Now, these are smart people, powerful people, and Kennedy welcomed them, and they're there in all of their splendor and maybe all of the splendor of the White House. And he said, I want to welcome you to the United States and to the White House of the United States This is the most august and intelligent group of people that has met in the White House since Thomas Jefferson dined here alone. (laughs) And it was Kennedy's way of putting everybody at ease and also 
conveying something about Thomas Jefferson. Now, here's another story about Thomas Jefferson. If you've been to Monticello lately and visited his home there and taken the tour, you will discover that a fairly good percentage, maybe 25%, maybe more than that, is devoted to the fact that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves. It's a true statement. But I came across a statement that, that I wanted to read to you because it seemed to capture something not only about nationhood or churches or families, but just about life. Calling to mind with gratitude those to whom we are indebted on our journey is not only a sort of piety, but one of the few pleasures that endure without loss or luster to, to the end. And we need, we need to know both stories about Thomas Jefferson. He was brilliant. He was the owner of slaves. But if the, the negative stories somehow begin to crowd out our sense of being indebted, whether it's to Jefferson or to Luther or to Augustine or to Paul the Apostle or to the people in our lives who have loved us and mentored us and nurtured us, we start to lose a sense or a piece of our own identity. And what struck me, I think, as I heard the, the five other people speak to us was, was how, how human they made the reformers. I mean, I mean, Luther really came across as, I mean, he's, he's your basic Stanley's Tavern type of guy. And, but so was Swingley. I mean, I remember the first time I ever read that Swingley died in battle. With all my idealism, I said, what was a reformer doing in combat? It made no sense to me. So we've seen the very human and very real side. But I hope you won't allow it to crowd out that sense of piety, that sense of gratitude for the debt we owe people who did what they did. And as a result of what they did, we're here today. And we have a great legacy because of them. So, so I think on that note, I needed to stop. We need to do a little bit of a reality check. And I don't mind doing this with you because one of the great things about this nine weeks is there are no exams. And nobody takes notes unless it's for personal benefit. I wonder what stories you remember from the eight previous Sundays on the Reformation. And it doesn't really matter what they are. I just, whether they're good or bad, I just wonder, what do you remember? Would you share it with us? Yeah. I was, well, you were talking about the humanity. Yes. I had no idea Luther had such anger. And that a lot of what he did revolved around anger or impeded in places or helped in, you know, but I mean, you don't think of him in retrospect as a, a man who had a problem with anger. You know, the picture of Luther the angry 
is it's quite a it's quite a jolt when you first hear that. I think. What what other stories do you all remember, Jim? Really was. Who who was? Uh, yeah, but who was uh, David Cards? David Hard's friend Frith, Firth, Frith, Firth. <laughs> but he died for that. Yeah. Trust a Baptist to come up with that. If you all couldn't hear, Jim was talking about the courage of people in England who translated the Bible from Latin or Greek and Hebrew into English. And then Creighton is talking about the, the reign of Bloody Mary. And aside from his predilection for his after-dinner drinks, I, I, the, the idea was that you can be so intense about differences, you'll kill people. And we don't kill them literally, but we can assassinate their character or something like that. What are the stories? Yes. God makes good come out of evil. <laughs> Thank you. Great memory. Yeah. Uh, for me, I was struck several times, particularly with John Calvin's love for the scriptures. And spending time really loving, end up loving God, and that was his driving force. But that spending, getting in the scriptures, and really bathing himself in it, that's when If you couldn't hear him, what struck him was John Calvin's love for Scripture, and through that, his love for God, and and that stuck, didn't it? I mean, Marilyn made that really come alive, I think, for us. Thank you. Yes.
culture. We do, we do. It's interesting. Luther's anger, Swingley's cultural narrowness or whatever, and God used them both to move nations or continents. But it was very real. Thank you. What? what yes. The point was that there were many people leading churches who were illiterate, and God used them. Pretty astounding when you think about that. I think Craig was next back here. Isn't that reassuring? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Patty was talking about Matthew's lecture last week on the particular story about how the Puritans of New England, some of them, reached out to Native Americans and learned their language, translated scripture into their language, and there was a sense of the centrality of the gospel not being lost with all the other stuff that was going on around it. It's a pretty powerful memory, too, which also gives hope that that's happening today, too. And thank God there is. Time for a couple of more if you've got stories that really... Yes. I don't know if you heard that. That that was it was confusing to the Puritans. His idea was if you think you're saved in in, the, in one of those 
congregational churches in Massachusetts, but you couldn't stand up in front of the congregation and give a credible statement of faith, they weren't willing to admit you as a brother or sister into the body of Christ. So it was, it was confusing, and it was confusing to them because the churches were shrinking. So it was, a, it was a tough one. That's a very powerful memory from that. Anybody else got another story? Yes. Interesting statement. The Reformation was not an event. It was a process of many, many events. And what struck John forcefully, and and it's hard for us to think about it, was that Luther and Calvin and, and Swingley and others were able to do what they did because they had the protection of the state, of the force of the state behind them. And that's something that, that we don't have. By the way, on that line, Carol and I were worshiping at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton Church in London a number of years ago. And I, I got to meet one of the pastors of the church. And it's, a, it's an Anglican church. And it was a thriving church. I mean, they had two morning services that were more or less traditional Anglican. And then Sunday night, they had a 5 o'clock and a 7 o'clock in central London, packed out, that was entirely contemporary worship. And I remember talking to the pastor, and I said, so so you guys are a state church, right? He said, we don't get anything from the state, from England. If we don't make it, we don't make it. And that's something that has changed, even in a state church like England or Germany or wherever else you may have state churches today. So our experience in this country is if you don't pay your way, you just don't go. That's new. And we kind of think that's the way it ought to be. And we're happy about that. So we don't live in the past. We live on the past. And the stories we tell about the past will either cover or they will convey the riches of the past. I have a third proposal about the past. And this third proposal is that the ideas of the past have great power to shape the present and the future. Go back for a minute to the two stories about Thomas Jefferson. Whatever you think about the stories, neither one of those stories gives you any idea what Thomas Jefferson thought. (laughs) They don't tell you anything about the statute of Virginia for religious freedom, which the Virginia legislature passed in 1786 and disestablished the Anglican Church in Virginia. It was the state church of Virginia. That statute did away with that, and it made Virginia a place where anybody could worship from any Christian denomination and Jews and Muslims and Hindus. Were there Hindus in the colonies? There was some idea about Jefferson's reach, something of how Jefferson anticipated 
what would be a later age where people get thrown together from all kinds of backgrounds. But that statute of Virginia was a major document, and it was Jefferson's work. And there's another work that you're more familiar with than that, and I brought a really interesting example of it. July 4th. Well, this has two dates on it. July 4th, 2010, and July 4th, 1776. The News Journal printed the Declaration of Independence, and I think they've done it other times since then, but it is a marvelous way of just putting in contemporary uh, journalistic form nothing but the contents and a picture which they didn't have the opportunity to have. That was Jefferson's work. And when Jefferson put his tombs put on it when Jefferson decided what he wanted on his tombstone, he wanted to be remembered for the statute of Virginia, the Declaration of Independence, and the University of Virginia, which he started. But we don't know anything about that by hearing those two stories. And so now I'm about to say something. Where's Marilyn? Is Marilyn in here still? She's upstairs. Are there no other presenters from the previous weeks here? Good. Well, I can say this with a... <laughs> I went home from the first two sessions, and I said to Carol, I just sat through two, day, two Sundays about events leading up to the Reformation and Martin Luther, and I don't think I heard anything about justification by faith. And when I think back over the last eight weeks, we do not have many, we do have some really good ideas of the ideas that drove these people. We have a better idea of their personalities almost than of what they actually believed and wrote and stood for. But I don't say that to criticize the presenters. I think they did for us exactly what we needed. We needed somebody to come in and tell people who may or may not know or may have more sketchy knowledge of that remarkable 16th century when the Reformation burst on the European scene. And they gave us, they gave us a royal information dump. And we have an idea of the main characters some of the main events and their consequences. And I think they did that for us in a marvelous way. So what we should think about these eight or nine weeks as being is kind of a prelude to the next Reformation course, which will be all about ideas. But I wanted to give you an idea about how powerful the ideas were in the life of Luther. This is, a, this is a commentary from the 19th century by a, an Anglican Brit named J.B. Lightfoot. And in the beginning of his commentary, he wrote this about Martin Luther. He said, when Luther commenced his attack on the corruptions of the medieval church... And by the way, Luther was, you know, Luther was not the only one who saw those corruptions. 
there were lots of voices very concerned about what was happening to the church in Europe. But when Luther commenced his attack, he chose the epistle to the Galatians as his most efficient engine in overthrowing the mass of error which time had piled on the simple foundations of the gospel. His commentary on the Galatians was written and rewritten. It cost him more labor and was more highly esteemed by him than any of his works. If age has diminished its value as an aid to the study of St. Paul, it still remains and ever will remain a speaking monument of the mind of the reformer and the principles of the Reformation. Galatians was what Luther wrestled with. You were talking about Luther's anger. He had, he had something that in German is called his Unfestungen. And they were, like, they were like these dark moments of depression. And there was one time in his anger when he picked up an ink bottle and he threw it at the wall at the devil to tell him to get out of my room. <laughs> and he was studying Galatians. And there's a footnote here taken from one of Luther's works, and he said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my wife. And this was written when he was still a monk, still wrestling with the idea of justification of the righteousness of God. And all of those ideas that fueled the Reformation were being Uh, garnered out of Galatians. We don't know that. That's another day and another study, and it would be really well worth our time to get involved in in the main ideas that Luther and Swingley and Calvin and John Knox and Richard Hooker and many other Reformation characters, not to mention Jonathan Edwards in this country, wrestle with. Another day. But ideas from the past have great power to shape the present and the future. And Luther found his best ideas in Galatians. Fourth proposal. Christian doctrine is ideas from the past which various church bodies have formally received and by which they agreed to live and to teach. And I brought something along here, and I'm probably going to need some of you people to help distribute this, if you don't mind. This is one of a couple of sheets I have for you all, so if somebody could help. Uh, you want to, hey, Celebrate your birthday. What's your name? David, you feel like walking? A little bit. Okay. If you just do this side, we would appreciate it. What I printed for you on this sheet, front and back, are four examples of Christian doctrine. And the Christian, Christian doctrine is generally embodied in creeds and in catechisms 
of one sort or the other, and they are then used by congregations or taught in classes, but they serve as defining the playing field in which this church body agrees to stay. And if you step outside that playing field, then that is a very serious matter for that uh, body of people. You know, I didn't, I didn't say this. It, Debbie, Debbie did the printing for me on this, and we were a little concerned. Could you take one per household? Keep what you have now. Just leave it on the chair when you leave, and we'll pick them up later. Thank you, Creighton. So what we have here are four examples of that, the first of which is the Nicene Creed. Now, these creeds cover a period of time. This is not the oldest. Thank you, David. I want, I want you to participate with me in this, but on the Nicene Creed, because it's longer, let me just read this and make a brief comment on it, and we'll move on to the next. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one, I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This is the only creed that is universally recognized by all branches of Christ Christianity, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestants, and I think probably Coptic, although I haven't confirmed that. This one, this one made the cut every time, and it's long. And, of course, I read it in the version that I uh, copied and it, it has more 
um, out-of-date English, and it's been updated probably. It's in, I think it's in our hymn book upstairs if you look there, and I think it has more up-to-date language there. The next one is the Apostles' Creed, and I'd like to try an experiment with this. <clears throat> if you think you know it, don't read it. And let's see if we can say it together. But if you don't know it, it's okay to read it. But I'd like you to do an exercise of imagination while we, while we do this. How many of you have ever worshipped in a church outside the United States? Wow, that's quite a few of you. Would you get a picture in your mind of that congregation? And others of you, I would assume, have worshipped in a, in a congregation other than Brandywine Valley in this country. Would you get, as well as you can, a picture of that congregation in mind? And what I'd like for you to do is to imagine all of us saying this creed together. So if you're, if you're a Presbyterian, <clears throat> we don't say forgive us our debts here, just so you know. It's forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And if you're an Episcopalian or a Catholic, we don't say and he descended into hell. The Presbyterians also say that. We leave that part out. That's not part of the oldest version of the Apostles' Creed. So with all those caveats, all together, can we, can we try it together? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He arose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You have to remember those Christians in Iraq and Libya who were slaughtered by ISIS fighters. If you and I went to one of their congregations, we would be ducks out of water. And it wouldn't just be the language. It, It would feel really different. But when they confess this confession, it is the same Jesus, it is the same God the Father, the same Spirit. This is, this is the confession, this is the doctrine that the church confesses today in congregations worldwide. Most of us can do it from memory. I think we did fairly well. It goes back probably to the third century. And just for your, remember, remember you were talking about the Puritans and the guys had to stand in front of the congregation and give their testimony and the ladies could just meet with the elders, which was probably as much intimidating. But in the early days of the Apostles' Creed, when somebody applied for baptism, the Apostles' Creed was the way they confessed their faith. 
It was part of every of all the instruction they received. And then they confessed that at their moment of baptism and they were admitted into the Church of Christ. On the back page, I put one question from the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. By the way, I grew up a Presbyterian, full disclosure, <clears throat> so I can say what I want about Presbyterians. And when I was six years old, my mother handed me what was called the Child's Catechism. had 108 questions in it, and they're all really short and sweet. And I memorized that, and I got something for it. When I was nine years old, she handed me the Shorter Catechism, which was three times as long. And she said, you need to memorize this. And when I was nine years old, I memorized the Shorter Catechism. I remember nothing. You could ask me questions and I could not answer them except for two. The first is the most famous question in the Catechism. Question number one, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the other one, which came back to memory unbidden, was this one. So I would like to read it. I'll be the questioner and you can be the responder. What is God? That is a powerful statement. And for a nine-year-old boy to learn that and have it stick, for the next 70 years was pretty good. And I'm grateful for that. The last thing there comes from Brandywine Valley's Statement of Faith. You can find Brandywine's Statement of Faith on brandywineonline.com.org. No wonder I can't find it. <laughs> but <laughs> then you've you got to go, you go to the about Thing, click on about, find vision, and embedded in the vision is this statement of faith. This is simply the first, well, it used to be first. I think in the, on the website this is probably third now, and for good reason, I suspect. But this is what we came up with in 1975. God moved the writers of the Old and New Testaments in such a way that all they wrote expresses without error God's thought. The Bible is the final authority for faith and living. And I, if I remember, I know in the written statement, and I think online, there are scripture references on which this statement is based. These are examples of, of Christian doctrine. If we get to it next week, I want to make a distinction for you between Christian doctrine and theology. Christian doctrine is what people agree is binding on their consciences and by which they agree to live and to teach. Theologians have more leeway to think outside the box and they will help the church in answering questions about their doctrines. But Brandywine's statement of faith is something you need to know that we as pastors always take seriously. I would never think 
of teaching outside that statement of faith. And if I started entertaining ideas that I knew a congregation was going to be uncomfortable with, I did a lot of mental gymnastics and a lot of soul searching to make sure I wasn't going to say something that violated what we say we stand for. Creeds, catechisms are kind of the, you know, they're kind of the flag in the sand by which a church body stands with Martin Luther and says with Martin Luther, unless I'm convinced by scripture and reason, here I stand. And that's a good thing. It has a downside. And we're going to talk about the downside next Sunday. And I hope you'll be here for that when I share with you my four proposals about the function of Christian doctrine. So the past. We don't live in the past. We live on the past. The stories about the past that we tell will either convey or they will cover up the treasures of the past. Number three, the ideas of the past have great power to shape the present and the future. And just as an aside, because of Brandywine's commitment to the scriptures, we are in constant contact with great ideas from the past that have the authority of God behind them. And then fourth, Christian doctrine is ideas from the past which various church bodies have formally received as binding on their consciences and by which they agree to teach and to live. So now, uh, tell, tell me where you are. Are you, are you doing okay? Or is there something we could talk about to bring some of this into a little sharper relief? Or are you happy as clams? Or What do you think? Yes. Yes. I wasn't here for all of this, okay? I was only able to attend like week two. Um, has this been recorded? Are we going to do this again? Because I have a great interest in all of this. I believe all of these presentations are online. And they're all on podcasts, and you can access them. I'm going to have to learn how to do that. I am very... Brandywineonline.org, and you, you can find it. Christy, is it pretty easy to find? My brandy one. Don't go to the website. There is a link on the website to that location. My brandy wine and all the classes and the recordings and all that. Wow. Is it mybrandywine.com, mybrandywine.org? Go to brandywineonline.org. Okay. There are resources and mybrandywine and there's a link you can click. Thank you. Thank you. And it's a podcast. And, but also has notes. Thank you all for all your work. I gave you no notes to work with. (laughs) Anything else before we call it a morning? Yes. Okay, the question is, if this is a creed and this is what we stand on, How can some churches take lines out or put lines in? And the answer to that really is the vagaries of human nature. 
Brandywine Valley, for example, has a statement of faith that is very consistent with other congregations, say, in the Wilmington area and across the United States. But we didn't put in everything each of them has, not because we may not agree with it, but we didn't think it was germane to who we are. Some people take it out because they think it wasn't scriptural. Some people put it in because they do think it's scriptural. And church bodies have leeway to do that. And it becomes an occasion of Christian love, (laughs) which we will talk about next time. No mas? You guys are good. I oh, thank you. You should really hold your applause till next time, because. <laughs> and I hope you'll be here next week. I know it's Labor Day weekend, but if you make it, it'd be great. Can we pray together and ask God to to somehow cement good things in our souls? Holy Father, we're we're thankful for the great men and women who have gone before us and on whose shoulders we stand. We thank you above all for the apostles and the prophets and for the cornerstone of all of this, Jesus Christ. And we thank you also for those who have taught, who have been martyred, who have fought, who have argued, and who have somehow conveyed the faith down through the years And, Lord, we are the beneficiaries of their faithfulness, of their faith, of their suffering, of their labors. We pray that through this summer together, you might put into our minds and hearts those things that we can draw on to sustain us in our future as followers of Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen. See you next week.